The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. It's disorienting to enter into a new territory that you're not familiar with. Uh, I, have a, uh, I have a friend, I'm going to try to be real vague here, I have a friend who is a good bit older than me, and he has to deal with computers a lot, like every day at work, all day. And uh, he, even though he's worked with computers for years, he doesn't quite get it. It's, it's a little bit confusing to him. It's a little bit disorienting, a little discombobulating to him. And sometimes I'll look over and I see him kind of fumbling around with it, like he's really trying to figure the thing out, and he just it doesn't make sense to him. Um, maybe, how many of you here from above the Mason-Dixon line? Anybody? Yeah. So that's like you when you see a bowl of grits, you just like stare at it like, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? And I've mentioned this before, but you guys weren't here, but I'm just going to make this statement public once again. You do not put sugar in the grits. I don't care what your mom has said. I don't, I, you do not put sugar in the grits. Butter, eggs, things like that, cheese, Perfectly acceptable, but no sugar. Uh, is why you probably look like, have you, anybody from above the Mason-Dixon line seen boiled peanuts? Anybody seen those things? Do they gross you out? Have you heard about it before? Have you seen them? We take peanuts and we bolt. They're amazing, by the way, in my, my opinion. But I can understand why you would kind of look at it and say, why would somebody do that to a perfectly good peanut? Uh, I'm like that when I see somebody put sauerkraut on a hot dog. That just seems wrong to me. It seems... Like, a, like an abomination to me, but some people do it. It's, it's, it's discombobulating to me. Also, uh, disorienting, discombobulating to me, soccer. I don't understand it. <laughs> I, I cut it on. I watch it. I want to be into this. It's like sushi. I want to like sushi. I want to really be into sushi, but I can't really get past like the really safe like sushi with the with the, with the guards on the, the rail, you know, like with the, everything that's been cooked and it's like, or fried, like that kind of safe sushi. When it has, once it has eel in it, I'm like out. If it has something on it that's not cooked, I'm sorry, I want to like it. I just can't figure it out. It's discombobulating to me. Soccer is the same way. I want to like it. I sit down and I watch it and I don't understand what's going on. I, I, don't, I don't get it. And, and whenever you don't understand something, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. It disorients you a little bit. You ever walk into a new building, a new school, a new job? Maybe you students, when you came down for a beach project, you come in, you're trying to get the lay of the land, and you don't really understand what's going on, and things are just kind of hazy and disorienting for, for a while. I think there's a lot of Christians today who are kind of going through that. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we've seen some pretty intense things happen. Some pretty crazy things happen, particularly those of us in South Carolina. Some, you know, when you combine the massacre in Charleston on top of, you know, the big Supreme Court decision this week and some other things. Like, I don't know about you, but my social media feed has been dominated by those two issues over the past week and the splinter issues that go out from that. There's a lot of rainbows going around, a lot of people fighting back and forth, a lot of articles. It's hard to keep up with all the stuff that people are writing, and it's kind of leaves, has left a lot of Christians, like, I feel like online, like, yelling like the sky is falling, right? Like, the world is about to end, like, we don't know what's going on, like, which way is up anymore, because things have changed so fast on us, like, it kind of caught up with us, or went, it went past us, like, we haven't caught up with it yet. 
But really, both of those issues, both of those events are expressions of a decade of incredible and momentous change in our country. Uh, incredible and uh, far-reaching societal and cultural change over the past 10 years. Think about this. Facebook didn't exist before 2004. Now, some of you guys, that sounds like a long time, but to me, that's like yesterday. Facebook wasn't open to the public outside of colleges until 2006, less than 10 years. We now have a black president. Oh, the Great Recession has happened. We've had rising racial tension. The LGBT movement has taken off like crazy. And on top of it all, uh, every single poll that comes out says that a smaller percentage of Americans profess that they're Christians than they were 10 years ago. Like it's the fastest shift, 10-year shift that we have seen in those polls ever. It's been trending downward for years, but it's the fastest cultural shift that we've seen in a long time. In fact, pollsters and those who... uh, follow such things. I'm not a sociologist, so I feel like I'm, I am uh, authorized to make comments about this. Like, they, they say that they haven't seen a single issue move as fast as the issue of uh, homosexual marriage in the past several years. 57%, I think, is the last poll that I saw approve of, home, of gay marriage. And so that leaves a lot of us as Christians kind of like, like left with our kind of equilibrium off trying to figure out, hey, what is going on? And, and, and how do we respond to that? And so it's interesting that by God's providence, we happen to be in Jonah chapter four this week to finish up our, excuse me, our series on Jonah. We're gonna talk about four things this morning. We're talking about how Jonah responded to the city of Nineveh, which is really what this chapter is about. Uh, Cam talked last week about how sort of the the microscope had had been on Jonah and on God and his sort of knocking heads with him. And then it shifted in chapter 3 to the people of Nineveh and how they responded to God. And it's a pretty amazing thing, right? I mean, Jonah is sort of the most despicable, least likable character in this whole book that bears his name. And yet Nineveh, who is this city who did not worship God, was far away from him that he was sent to, he walks through and you, you kind of picture like, like he probably kind of almost did it with an attitude. Like we don't really know, it's kind of filling in the gaps. But that when it says what he preached to the city of Nineveh in the original language, I think it's like five words. We don't know if that's all that he said. Maybe he had whole sermons, but you got to get the whole idea. He was kind of walking through the city with a bad attitude. Like, you know how, like, when somebody, like, when my wife asked me to take out the trash, like, hey, the trash is overflowing, and I hate taking out the trash. I, it, it, I get angry, and I, and I open that, the, we have in this bin, and I pull it open, and it's spilling out, and I get so angry with that trash in there, and everybody else in the building, and I know it's my job, and it's literally 10 steps, probably, from this trash can to the outside trash can, so it's not like it takes a lot of work or effort, but I just get angry about it, and I do it with a bad attitude, kind of grumbling and mumbling underneath my breath, and if I trip over a toy on the way, I'm just like, wow, there's kids, and everybody in this family, somebody needs to take some responsibility around here. (laughs) I picture kind of Jonah doing the same thing, walking through the city preaching, and just underneath his breath is, you guys are all a bunch of maggots, I can't can't believe I'm here, you wouldn't believe what I've gone through, I would spit out a fish for you people. He's just hoping the whole time that he'll preach the sermon that God has kind of backed him in the corner to doing. 
and that Nineveh won't believe. And whenever he finishes and he sees Nineveh respond as a whole entire city breaking out sackcloth and ashes and praying that God would relent of the disaster that he had said would come in 40 days, Jonah is just absolutely angry. He is livid about it. And I think he's kind of responding to the city of Nineveh the way that we as Christians sometimes respond to the society around us. I have four points this morning. One is that the city was sinful. Two is the city was great. Three, that Jonah was sinful. And four is that God is compassionate. First of all, the city was sinful. By every account, Nineveh was a wicked city. God knew it. That's why he came to Jonah and he said, go to the city of Nineveh, that great city, and tell them that yet in 40 days they will be destroyed. They had it coming to them. A couple of weeks ago I recounted to you like just how kind of brutal and barbaric and violent the people, the Assyrians were in the city of Nineveh was. They would capture their captives and they would skin them alive because they wanted the other cities that are around them that were, they were going to attack next to hear about them. They would have cities that would just give themselves up to them, surrender to them, simply because they had heard how horrendous they were in battle, how violent and brutal they were. They wanted, so people wanted no part of it. And God knew how evil the city was. And that's why he sent Jonah to go to them and tell them that if they were to continue, and you say if they were to continue the way they were going, in 40 days they're going to be destroyed. He just said, yet in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. God knew it and Jonah knew it. That's why Jonah was so angry. In this chapter he says, like, this is exactly why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew that if they heard and they repented, you would relent. You would back off. And Jonah knew that, that something wasn't right about that because they had it coming to them. They deserved the punishment. It, it, for God to let the city of Nineveh to continue and the Assyrian Empire to continue in their brutality and violence, even though they just repented at this time, he knew they're just going to go right back and do it again. And more people are going to suffer. And, they, and the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire had been raiding the, the nation of Israel and coming in. And just a few years later, the, city, the capital city of Israel, Samaria, is going to fall under the power of the Assyrians. God relents from destroying Nineveh. And then the Assyrian Empire comes in and captures the main city of the northern kingdom of God's people. That doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right. Jonah had a reason to be angry and to be livid about this. This was not fair. And not only did God know it and Jonah knew it, but the people of Nineveh knew it. They don't put up a fight when Jonah shows up. It's the easiest crowd ever. You guys are way harder to preach to than the city of Nineveh was when Jonah shows up. Jonah shows up to an evil, brutal Empire, the, the largest city on the face of the earth at the time, 120,000 people. This is to give you an idea of how big the city of Nineveh was at that time. The average city at this time in the ancient world was about 3,000 people. The city of Nineveh, 
over 120,000 people. It was huge. And he showed up and he preaches to this people. They could have just killed him and just thrown him off to the side, thrown him over the wall. Like they could have done whatever they did to every other person that had gotten in their way. And Jonah knew that, by the way. That's why he was afraid to go. And yet he shows up, preaches this sermon where he's kind of almost mumbling underneath his breath that they don't deserve any mercy. And they respond. They put on sackcloth and ashes and call for a fast. Not only were they a cruel and violent people, but they weren't God's people. They were actively and passionately worshiping other false gods. So they were violent and cruel and barbaric, and they didn't worship the God of the Bible. The, God, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only that, but here's the interesting thing. They don't, if you notice in, this, in the preceding passage in chapter three, the city of Nineveh, the, even though they repent, they don't repent fully. They don't say, hey, we're only gonna worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from now on. We're gonna serve him only, circumcise us, and bring us in as a part of the nation of Israel. They just say, hey, God, we're not going to be violent anymore. We're going to do our best not to be violent anymore. Would you not destroy us? And that's all they do. And Jonah knows that's not right. He says, God, they're going to go right back to doing what they did before. Have you had some kind of those repentance experiences before? <laughs> Where you, you repented, and even while you're repenting, you're crying. Maybe you're up front at a meeting, or you're talking with a friends, or you're by yourself, and you know, mid-cry, I'm going to do this again. Jonah knew that about the city of Nineveh, and he was absolutely right, because almost 150 years later, the prophet Nahum He's gonna have a whole small little book, a couple of books back from here, where he's just describing how Nineveh has gone back to being wicked and they're gonna be destroyed again. 150 years later, the city of Nineveh would no longer exist. So why would God waste the time to give them mercy to such a wicked, evil, sinful city? And he does it because he says, that they're a great city. He says it in the beginning of the book, and he says it here at the end of this chapter. Should I not have pity or compassion or mercy upon that great city? It's interesting that God calls it a great city, isn't it? Because there's nothing really great about it. They're evil, they're barbaric, they don't worship God, they hate his people, they're attacking them, and they're gonna take over the capital city of Samaria in just a few years after this. But God says that they're great, why? Because there are people there. They might have been an evil people, they might have been a barbaric people, they might have been a people who are opposed to God and his people, but there were over 120,000 people there who were made in the image of God. And when God looked on that city, and that, this word here when he says, should I not have compassion upon them or pity upon them? It's a word of mourning. Should I not look upon them in mercy and compassion? 
They're walking around as people who do not know their right hand from their left. They're groping in darkness. They're feeling around in the midst of darkness. They are blind and they are surrounded by darkness and they're groping around. And should I not mourn for them? Should I not have pity upon them? Should I not have compassion upon them? It is a great city because there were a lot of people there. And so to God, it was worth all that he put put Jonah through. He came to Jonah and said, go to this city. And he didn't tell him for certain that he would live. So Jonah's thinking, I might even go to this city and preach and die. They might kill me there for what I'm saying. He goes on the boat, going the opposite way, and God doesn't just say, all right, I'm just going to find somebody that will do this. God brings a storm on the boat, puts the lives of these, he scares the bejesus out of all the other sailors that are on this boat with them that think they're going to die. Jonah gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by a fish that God appointed and set up to swallow him. And who knows all that God had to do for the decades before to ensure that there would be a, some sort of a fish, whether a whale or something that would be big enough and at just the right place, at just the right moment to swallow Jonah and not like destroy him, but actually just swallow him and he'd be okay in the belly of this fish. And then to spit him up back on dry land. God went through a lot so that this wicked, evil city, but yet who had 120,000 people made in his image, would hear about this great, compassionate, loving, merciful, slow to anger, and relenting of disaster, God. Go to that great city. And I wonder this. As we look around at our country, as we look around at our city, as you look around at your school, what do you see? Do you see a sinful city, a sinful school, a sinful people? See, there are some of us that are putting the hook that we just don't like to be uncomfortable to think about anything uncomfortable. And in our society today, we don't like to think about it as anything as being wrong. Do you even stop to think, like, hey, where do the people around me? Where are they in relationship with God? They're made in the image of God. And are they groping around in darkness, in open rebellion to him, trying to find their own way? Do you ever think about that and let that wash over you and break your heart for the people? Do you and I ever look at our workplace, our neighbors, person who cuts in front of you on Highway 501 and you want to cuss them out or you do cuss them out? You ever look at them and think, they're made in the image of God and they are lost and separated from him. They are sinful, but yet they are great because they were made in his image. Ever look at your school? I, I drive by Coastal Carolina University every single day when I go to work. And there are 10,000 students on that campus 
who do not know their right hand from their left hand. They are groping in darkness, maybe 2% evangelical Christian on that campus, groping around in darkness, in open rebellion, yes, in absolute sin, far from God, going the opposite direction, want no part of him, and yet that great school, should God not have compassion upon them and mercy upon them, and should you and I not have compassion and mercy upon them? I wonder if you and I look at the people around us, at the school, at the city, at their co-workers, at the business that you go to work at. I wonder if you do that. I wonder if we do that and look through the lens that God looks through. The city may be sinful. It is absolutely, and yet it is great. In the Myrtle Beach metropolitan area, there are over 400,000 people at least 200,000 of them, probably a much larger number than that, do not know their right hand from the left hand at your school that you're going back to, at the city that you're going back to. How many people are there that do not know their right hand from their left hand? The city was sinful, but yet the city was great, But not only that, Jonah was sinful. This is what Jonah kept overlooking. He disobeyed, he ran away, and yet God poured out his grace to him over and over again. The storm to him on the water was a grace. The fish that swallowed him under that water was a grace to him. Whenever he sat, he left, he left the city of Nineveh, sits on the hill. He's overlooking, hoping that God will, will still destroy the city of Nineveh. And it's hot and it's beating down. Think of how hot it's been here the past two weeks. It's hotter than that. No air condition. He's sitting out there, no house. He might have been able to construct a, some, type of a, some type of a shelter. But it probably wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be very much protection from the heat and from the elements. And he's sitting there, and God causes, God appoints, it says, a plant to grow up and give him shade. And it says he loved that plant. God poured out his grace to him. And yet when the worm comes the next day and eats it and it dies, Jonah mourns for that plant. But he's not mourning for the people. You know why he mourned for the plant? Because it benefited him. And the people were opposed to him. They were on the other side of the divide. He didn't see. He thought for some reason that maybe he deserved the grace that God kept pouring out upon him. And I wonder how we as Christians look in the society around us. I wonder what kind of city that we're sitting up on looking at the other city around us, the outsiders the other people, and we all have the other people who are different from us, who somehow deserve what they have coming to them. I wonder how we look at them. See, Jonah looked at that city and he had a racial prejudice against them because they were not Jews, and so therefore they didn't deserve grace. He was a Jew and he deserved that grace that kept coming to him. They did not deserve that. And sometimes 
our, from our vantage point on our own hill, we're looking out. And the way that we see the people around us, the society around us is colored by racial prejudice. Do we think that people who are a particular color or a different background than, than me, like, hey, if they just worked, they just got a job, they can move out of the slums. If they just could quit complaining, they could actually do something. If they'd go to work, if they'd quit smoking weed, all the stereotypes that we have about people who have a different color than us, that colors our perception of people and what they have coming to them. They deserve what's coming to them, and I don't deserve it because I have somehow, I am neutral, or I have something, I deserve something. Some of us have racial prejudice, some of us have social prejudice. We look at the people around us, we look at society around us, and they have a different background than I have. I grew up in church, I grew up Southern, and man, all the, look at all what all these crazy people are doing to our country who don't go to church or didn't grow up from the church or didn't come from the background that I, that I come from. And we think that somehow they deserve what's coming to them. And we start to believe this lie over time that I'm a little bit better than the people around me. We're not seeing the grace that God keeps pouring out to us over and over again. Some of us look around us and we have national prejudice. We, th- we really think that America is God's chosen country and that he loves the red, white, and blue a little better than everybody else. But you know what? White Southern Americans, white Americans, we're going to be the minority in heaven. God doesn't speak English, by the way. He doesn't live in a heavenly white house flying the stars and stripes. But we look at some outsiders from a national prejudice thinking somehow we're the chosen ones. Some of us look at a cultural prejudice. Some of us grew up in the, in the South and we're we grew up in the church, and so like, we, we understand our kind of particular culture, and so we look outside and we see people who, who have different cultures and different backgrounds, and we think, man, they're wrong. They have exactly what's coming to them. Some of us have a religious prejudice. We somehow think because I'm a Christian, I deserve more than those who aren't. When really, if you and I have received the unmerited favor of God given to us through Jesus Christ, shouldn't we be more humble than anybody else? And some of us have a moral prejudice. We see the people in our Facebook feed and Twitter feed and the people at school and at work who don't follow our morals and we think that they, that somehow because we are more moral than they are, that we deserve more than they deserve. Jonah had received grace over and over again, but he did not see it. He was livid by the fact that God is compassionate. He wanted a one-way grace because he believed that somehow he really deserved it. But you know what? That's not grace at all. That's just asking or expecting God to return a favor. Jonah 4.2, 
for I knew that you are, this is what he was angry about. Isn't this, he's complaining to God, isn't this what I told you would happen? This is exactly why I did not want to come. For I knew that you are, this is the nature and character of God, that you are a gracious God. That's unmerited favor and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God in his very nature is compassionate and gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it's interesting that he uses that word, steadfast, wording steadfast love because that's a word that would be applied only to the Jews. It had a picture of God's covenantal, steadfast love that he had set upon his chosen people, the Jews, and yet somehow Jonah knew that's your very nature and character, and that somehow applies to these people. You are full of steadfast love. See, God's compassion is a different kind of compassion than ours. It's a different kind of compassion than we find anywhere else. First of all, God's compassion is freely and totally voluntary, Freely and totally voluntary. You and I have compassion upon things, and we have compassion upon things the same way that Jonah did. He had compassion upon that plant because it benefited him and it had given him shade. You and I have compassion upon our pets or our friends or our football teams or our, our, our loved ones because they somehow benefit us, but God needs nothing outside of himself. He, does, he needs no, nothing outside of himself. He is totally and completely self-sustaining. And so if he shows compassion upon somebody or something, it is solely because he freely and voluntarily chooses to show compassion upon them, not because they offer him anything in return. God's compassion is freely and totally voluntary. God's compassion is, also, is not blindly permissive. Think about how he showed compassion to the city of Nineveh. He didn't show compassion by turning a blind eye and help it, letting them continue in their violence and their barbaric behavior. He sent a prophet to them to tell them, this is going to happen to you. God addressed the sin. He wasn't just simply blindly permissive. And so when we think about how we should show compassion to the people around us, to society around us, to those who are not 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 believers, as we become more and more the minority when it, in regards to culture and morality in this country, it doesn't mean that we're blindly permissive. God's compassion, number three, reveals sin and its horrors for our sake, for the people's sake, from a broken and a mournful heart. God looked upon that great city and he mourned that 120,000 people were there who did not know their right hand from their left hand and he sent somebody to tell them you are the, to tell them of their sin and the horrors of it and what was going to happen to them because of that. So to be compassionate doesn't mean that you just totally turn a blind eye, you address and reveal sin and its horrors, but for the sake of the people, he told them so they would not continue to move around in blindness and darkness. Before God's compassion is selfless. It's for the ultimate good of the recipient. God got nothing in return for this. He was simply moved with compassion upon them. 
Number five, God's compassion is completely unmerited. And something in us says that that's not fair. That's what grace is. That's what true compassion is. That's what true mercy is. But it's totally not fair. Totally not deserved. Megan and I, we, as you guys know, like Megan and I miscarried a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the, our church community responded by, you know, bringing meals by and sending gift cards so we could get dinner. And, you know, Megan and I both, Megan to a greater extent, but we're, we both kind of dealt with like, hey, like, you know, like, like, we don't really need, like, like we, like we appreciate it, but we, you know, we could be okay. We could, you know, we could make dinner ourselves. We could, we could go do something. We could take care of ourselves, but our people around us wanted to show grace and love to us. That's completely unmerited. It wasn't, they didn't do it because we couldn't do it for ourselves. They did it because it was just out of the love and compassion of their heart. And sometimes that's hard for us to receive, and it's hard for us sometimes to see when somebody else gets it. But we, sometimes we like to get it ourselves, but we don't want other people to get it. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear about that kind of a compassionate God, I think I am Jonah. Because I sit on that proverbial hill overlooking those people. Again, we all have those people. Rooting for them to fail, to fall on their face, to get what's coming to them. I wonder if we look on our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds right now and think like, you're gonna get what's coming to you. I'm waiting for you to get what's coming to you. But all the while, I'm sitting in the shade of God's grace, sipping from the cup of his grace, freshly rescued, just like Jonah was freshly rescued from the sea, solely by his gracious, merciful, patient, and loving compassion. And where does that leave us as a human, as a human race with any hope? Because we're all sitting on our own hills, overlooking each other. We're all on our own little individual hill, overlooking each other, And we can't seem to find our way off our hills, can we? Because it's too painful and too disorienting to lose our sense of security and identity that I've built up so I can be on my hill. The things that I think are important. My own uh, racial background, social background, national background, cultural background, religious background, moral background. But almost 800 years after Jonah sat overlooking Nineveh, a man would stand on another hill. This time, not overlooking the violent, wicked city of Nineveh, but overlooking the city of Jerusalem, the city of God's people. And he wouldn't sit on the hillside with a plant over him. He would sit on a donkey, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He mourned for them. His heart was moved with compassion for them, even though knowing when he arrived in that city, within five days, they would put him and nail him to a cross, turn him over to be brutally killed. But instead of anger, he wept. 
He saw the city of humanity swimming in darkness, not knowing our right hands from our left, and he did something about it. Which is the crazy part of the book of Jonah, right? Because it just kind of ends here. Jonah's complaining like a little teenager, saying he'd rather die. Sort of like the old Jim Gaffigan bit where about McDonald's. Anybody heard that before? Like, you know, everybody complains about McDonald's, but they sell 100 million hamburgers every day. So, like, somebody's lying about it. Everybody's going to McDonald's. It's like, we as Americans are like, uh, are like little teenagers about McDonald's. Like, you're gross. I hate you. When's dinner? That's kind of what Joan is doing on this, on this hillside. Like, he's complaining. Yet all the while, God's been pouring out his grace upon him. And it just kind of ends there. But there would be another man who would do something about it. Days later, he would be stood up on another hill overlooking the city. The sun beating down on his head. He wouldn't whine and wish for death like a petulant teenager. He would bravely face a painful death. And we were all in that city. We were all groping around in darkness. Our only hope to look up to that hill and see the one there with his hands and feet and ultimately his side pierced. To find in him a reason and the ability to repent of our sin and darkness to repent of our own deeds of violence, to to find the reason and the ability to repent of our own prejudice. And it is that realization that Jonah lacked as he looked over that great city. And it's what we lack when we look over our great city, our great land, our great world and hate and disgust and judgment. Shouldn't I have compassion on that great city? See, it's only then when we realize that we have been the gracious recipients of that compassion that the answer can come from us and say yes. And then we can respond with a compassion. It's only then that we can respond with a compassion that mirrors that of God, that is free that is truthful, that is selfless, and that's unconditional. I think instead of getting angry or hurt or scared about what's going on in our culture, we should respond with compassion. Knowing the grace that's been poured out to us and moved to mourn as God does over our great city, our great school, our great workplace that we live in. So if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, the question for you is, how will you respond to that kind of compassion? Will you drop your idea of what makes someone worthy and accept your place in darkness and turn to the one who took your destruction for you? 
and to those of us who are believers, who are Christians this morning, will we be humbled by grace? Will we pray for compassion? And will we let that, I, that knowledge of the gracious compassion of God that's been poured out to us enable us to be boldly humble to the city that we live in? Not just turning a blind eye that's permissive, but not putting ourselves on the hill of judgment when there's somebody else who belongs on that hill and died for that right. God's grace, when it's received, it compels us to compassion. Oh, this morning we are all debtors to your grace. It's a debt that none of us can pay back to you. It's something that should be continually overwhelming to us. God, I pray that uh, each of us would be confronted this morning with our own prejudices that we have uh, allowed to set us up on a hill of judgment of the people around us cheering for their failure, cheering for their destruction, all the while forgetting that we have been saved from destruction ourselves. And God, would you make us as we we leave here today, would you make us, this little church, us and the ministries that are represented here, us as a people of God across this whole land, a people who are bold, but yet humbled by grace. So that when people hear us speak and see us live, they would see a different kind of DNA there that they can't explain apart from your gospel, apart from your presence in our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem and save those of us who are lost and groping in darkness. In your son's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.